welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast about how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. Today I'm delighted to welcome Nicola Williams, barrister, judge, ombudsman and novelist. Nicola was called to the bar in 1985 and since 2009 she's been a part-time Crown Court judge. She's been commissioner at the Independent Police Complaints Commission, Complaints Commissioner for the Cayman Islands, and the first ever service complaints ombudsman for the UK Armed Forces. She has served on many boards, won a Cosmopolitan Magazine Woman of Achievement Award, and been listed as one of the 100 most influential black people in the UK. Nicola is the author of a legal thriller, Without Prejudice, which was reissued in a series curated by Bernadine Evaristo in 2020. Her second novel, Until Proven Innocent, will be out in March. In this podcast, Nicola talks about ambition, crime and the joy of justice. So hello, Nicola, and welcome to The Art of Work. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Okay, I'm very pleased to be here too, my first ever podcast. Well, well, actually, in all my years as a journalist, I've never interviewed a judge or a barrister for that matter. (laughs) So so I'm really looking forward to hearing what what I learn in this session about your work and obviously about your your career and life generally. So when did you first decide that you wanted to pursue a career in law? Well, uh, at school, at secondary school, and um, I, at the point of deciding what you wanted to do for a living, it sort of coincided with the fact that I knew I wanted to go on to university. I absolutely knew I wanted to do that. The question was, what was I going to do? So I was actually very keen on becoming a linguist. Uh, My A-levels are English, French and German. So I I dropped the Germans. I did English, French and history, but I was very keen on on doing that. And then I was also keen on fashion design because I am very interested in clothes and will always be, I could imagine. I'd be the little old lady who would still be fabulously dressed. (laughs) I'd imagine that (laughs) on my walker. Um, So it was so law was kind of it wasn't a first choice. But I have absolutely no regrets about it. I always love to debate. I was always the kind of person that would, um, I probably wouldn't stick up for myself so much if there was like a bit of an issue. But if it was on behalf of somebody else, I absolutely would do it. So I think um, that augured well for a criminal defence barrister, I guess. And, and was that what you, when you decided you wanted to go into law, was it criminal defence barrister that you wanted to do? Were you clear about that? Or, did that become, or was it kind of law and then the actual form of it became clearer later? I, I knew I wanted to be a barrister as opposed to a solicitor because I knew I wanted to stand on my feet and argue cases. But whether I was going to go into crime or any other area of the law, I didn't know. And even in the early first five to ten years, in fact, the first ten years of my practice, I had what I would call a mixed practice which is both civil and crime um so so yes i knew i wanted to be a barrister i knew i wanted to be that person standing up and defending people but i didn't know anything beyond that and what were your because i knew i mean i i probably gathered i'm still you know relatively ignorant about the law at my extremely advanced stage um Mm -hmm. what were your models of the law i mean did you know if you thought of a barrister when you were a teenager what what did you think of did you have any one you thought oh, I'd really like to be like them well two things I'll say about that one will definitely give away my age within five or so years is that I used to when I was at school 
and early part of my secondary schooling I used to um, come home at lunchtime and watch Crown Court Oh, yeah. So so that really can kind of relatively accurately pinpoint how old I am. Um, and I was really fascinated by that. And it's amazing how many lawyers are really fascinated by that program. Yeah. Um, the other thing was um, my parents are both Windrush um, generation migrants. Um, they're not Jamaican because that was where the Empire Windrush actually left from. But they were the part of that uh, cohort of Caribbean people that came here between 1948 and 71. And my late father was very keen on being a barrister. And uh, if things had worked out differently, I think that's what he would have wanted. So there was a possibly a little bit of parental influence there, but um, not um, forcing me to do it. Mm -hmm. it was, uh, that influence is definitely there. And I had, I mean, I understand your father did a variety of jobs, including working in a post office. Yes, he did. He was the he worked at Mount Pleasant Post Office and he was very active in the union at Mount Pleasant Post Office. Um, I don't know how many black people that they had, but uh, at the time there. But I do know that he was definitely one of the very, very few black people that were active in the union at Mount mm. Pleasant. So, yeah. And what other jobs? What was his what did he do when he first came over? Okay, when he first came over, he, he was in Guyana, which is where both my parents are from. He was a police officer in Guyana. And what he wanted to do was to come to England to study law because one of his friends, who actually became a very, very well-known um, lawyer and judge in Guyana, a chap called Keith Messiah, had come to England and had, had studied law and had come back to Guyana. And he kind of wanted to do that. And he thought what he would do uh, was join the police force in England and then study for the bar um, part time, which in those days you could absolutely do that, do your part ones and part twos. So he came over here, but unfortunately they had a color bar in the police force at the time. Um, it was a kind of um, de facto, I might be using the wrong word, but you know, it wasn't a written down color bar, but there was one uh, because this is sort of in the early 60s he wanted to do this and uh, they didn't, their first black police officer didn't join till 1968. So uh, he couldn't join the police force. And then it was, you know, what do I do now? Because that really threw a complete spanner in the works. And that was when he did various jobs. I think the very first job he ever did, he packed light bulbs in a factory. Um, I do remember the Mount Pleasant one. Um, and also he had a young family at the same time. So that kind of not derails your plans, but, you know, you, 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 you have a different focus, I think, at that point. But he was always... Um, it, you and he would have had one thing in common that he loved Latin. He was sort of taught himself Latin. He was very disappointed when he found that there was a barrister when I qualified. You know, being able to speak Latin wasn't such a big deal. And he was quite disappointed about that. <laughs> um, and he was an incredibly well-read person, as, as was my mom, actually. That was something they very much had in common. When my mother was pregnant with me, she actually, um, she didn't come over with much. They didn't come over with much from uh, from Guyana, but... She had the complete works of William Shakespeare. She read that when she was pregnant with me. And she says, one of the reasons why I like Shakespeare, because I do. So, yes. And what, so your mother, both educated, what, what did your mother do when, what did your mother do before she came over and what did you do after she came over? Well, she was a, a nurse and hated nursing. And then she became a teacher. And at the point that she came to the UK, she was a teacher. But then um, within a year of coming to the UK, um, she was pregnant with me. And so she didn't work for a little while. And then she went into the civil service here. And she did a, a, a YouTube um, clip 
for the National Liberal Club, talking about her experiences as a, a migrant in the UK in the 60s. And uh, yeah, with all the privations and difficulties that mm. entailed. Um, but that was what she she did. So she didn't work for a while. And then she decided that then she worked for the civil service. Then um, she decided on the urging of her, my aunt, her sister, that effectively, are you going to come to England and just work for the civil service and have kids and not sort of advance yourself in anything? Why don't you qualify for something else? So she decided to qualify as a social worker. Mm-hmm. So that is what she did. And, and once she qualified, her entire career up until the point that she retired was in social services. And she retired at a, a senior level. She was deputy director for Lambeth Social Services when she wow. retired. So they were, it sounds like, um, middle-class Guyanese. And uh, the one thing I've observed about uh, sort of Caribbean education of that era was that it was much more like the English private school system, like prep school and public school. In oh, yes, one million percent. Definitely, from what I've heard my parents say, yes, but from my personal experience, because I was born in the UK, but when I was 10 we went back as a family to Guyana and we stayed there till I was 14 and then we came back again. And I can certainly tell you from 10 to 14, that was 100% my experience. Mm. And I count myself very fortunate to have had what I call a mixed education in the sense of not only in two different countries, but also um, a private and state education. And the, it, yes, it, it absolutely was that, no question. And when you came back, did you go to, what kind of school did you go to? Oh, I just went to a regular um, comprehensive school in Thornton Heath. <laughs> so Selhurst Girls, it doesn't exist anymore, but I think it's it got taken over as part of the Brit school or something. But, um, and it, I'm not knocking it at all because, you know, I didn't have, in terms of, well, no, I can't praise them too much. <laughs> I think, I think to be perfectly honest, there were bits that I liked, there were bits that I didn't like, and um, I, I think more than anything, it was a real culture shock for me because I came from a school where there was a lot of respect for teachers. I mean, all our teachers were, most of our teachers were nuns. Um, not everybody had to be a Catholic to go to that school. In fact, a lot of people weren't, but it had a, such an excellent reputation, so a lot of people went. Um, so you but people it was very ordered I suppose and then I came to Selhurst and it wasn't ordered and you know one way or another it took me about two years to get over the culture shock of it uh not just coming to a different country but of course having to deal with racism in a very real way uh which you don't you know Guyana isn't monoracial but um there isn't the kind of tensions that were in England particularly back then weren't in Guyana at the time. So I had to deal with that. And I suppose most of all, the, un, the, the, the poor expectations that the teachers, when, when I was there, were, they were all white, the poor expectations that they had of black students. And I had one teacher who was absolutely brilliant, who I really remember, but I had one teacher who was really awful. And I really wonder how many other black children's hopes she derailed because she was very, very bad. So, um, so when I read um, Without Prejudice, I really love, I'm afraid mm-hmm. I, you should never, ever, and obviously I've been a critic for more than 30 years, so I in particular should never, ever make this assumption. But I couldn't help thinking that when you wrote about um, Lee's uh, experience 
limits of experience <laughs> at school and the careers of you can't go into law because black black girls don't go into law and then mm. she gives she's invited back to give a talk at her school and is, and the school is trying to claim credit for her high flying career as a barrister and she basically says you know well no thanks to this gummy school <laughs> I, I couldn't help assuming that there might be an autobiographical um, there, 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 there was I did have a teacher the only person I actually use their real name in is the teacher that you're talking about because she was my careers teacher and she was terrible actually she really was so I didn't think she needed to be protected and mm -hmm. um, she's probably no longer with us it's a really long time ago mm -hmm. but um I, I never got the chance of going into school and, and talking to them like that it was a kind of um I, I wish I would have done so it was like in I, my didn't, I didn't think that bit of it was true but I thought the, <laughs> I thought the careers teacher probably was and the tragic thing is I just reviewed Mallory Blackman's memoir the Sunday Times mm -hmm. and she had the experience at school where she was told, uh, no, you can't go and study English because, you know, you can't go to university to read English because you're black. And a friend of mine who's a very successful writer was basically told, you lot will all go and work at Tesco's. I mean, essentially, oh, yeah. for an entire generation, it seemed. That was, ex that was exactly what happened to me. She told me absolutely no word of a lie. She told me when I was doing my A-levels and she asked me what I wanted to do. And I told her I wanted to be a linguist from the UN. She said. And I quote, and I remember it because it was so stark. Oh, no, I don't think you should do that. I think you should go and work in Woolworths. And and I think she would have maybe seen my sort of slack jawed amazement. And then she what I'm sure she thought was a helpful alternative. Of course, if you don't want to go in Woolworths, you could you could go and work as a nurse. And she wasn't thinking of a I know that at the time there were two different types of nurses. And, and state one is state enrolled and the other one is state registered and one was one you could have left school at 16 and gone to do and and so even though I was already in the A-level class that was what she was telling me to do wow. and then she actually saw me working I mean of course I came back and I told my parents and they just said oh just forget her you know you know what you want to do we know what we know what you can do and you just forget her and but I think if I didn't have that sort of dogged self-belief in myself around my intellectual ability mm. and also if I didn't have people that were supporting me like family that was supporting me the outcome could have been very different because she was a careers teacher for a lot of people and you don't know what she told someone that maybe they had this kind of just nascent hope of doing something more than she expected and then she punctured that and then she went home they went home and then yeah. possibly their family could have said oh well the teacher's always right and that's the end of that there is a funny uh like the outcome of that I, I was actually after I went to university at the end of my first year I was actually working in retail in one of the stores in uh, Croydon and she came in and she saw me on the till and she said I'm so happy that you found something that matched your um your sort of abilities <laughs> and when I told her actually I'm just doing this as a summer job and actually I'm doing my degree at university she got bright red kind of disappeared off into the corner, never to be seen again. So, <laughs> I mean, that's that's a kind of malicious, isn't it? That's not just low expectations. I'm wondering, because obviously, you you know, you come to a South London comprehensive, really mm -hmm. good one, but the South London comprehensive from a uh, kind of rather fancy, in a way, school in Guyana. Yeah, that is true. Uh, where academic achievement is extremely highly valued. And 
which is not automatically the case in South London Comprehensive. Did yes. you, as well as the kind of racism that you've mentioned, did you, how, what was it like being a SWAT in that environment? Oh, it was, it was difficult, actually. I don't, I have to say, between 14 and 18, I don't necessarily look back on those years with a great deal of happiness, particularly, particularly 14 to 16. You know, 16 to 18, you're in the A-level class is maybe slightly different. But in the early years, yes, I think I, I, I come back to uh, back to the UK, back to a different part of London where we lived before. So I didn't have any connections with this area. And also I'm coming into an environment where everybody else already had their friends. And so I'm the kind of quiet, swatty, like specky swat kind of kid. Um, very much against what the um, stereotypical image of a black girl would have been then, which is sort of mouthy, liked to play netball, wasn't particularly academic. And so I sort of went against all of that. So I, it was kind of difficult for me. Um, the it, Between 14 and 16, the girls I associate, I didn't, and also I'm much more introverted than people think. So it was kind of difficult. I think the girls that I associated with those early days were actually um, mostly Asian girls, actually. And then when I went to my A-level class, there was a woman, uh, another black woman who became a really good friend. And we, she's now in America living a completely different life, but we still keep in touch. So it, it kind of academically only really fell into place, I suppose, in the sixth form, because, you know, everybody there wants to study. And that's why you're there. Mm. Yeah, but but the first couple of years were really quite um, tough because um, there were girls, um, both black and white, who just seemed to assume that if you weren't whatever the fill in the stereotype here of whatever a young black girl or teenage black girl was going to be, that you were sort of, you know, nobody should talk to you. Mm -hmm. So that was I spent a lot of time on my own in the library. Mm -hmm. uh, but the good thing is I can spend a lot of time on my own and I'm not bothered about that. But that was it wasn't so great, I have to say. And did you do a law degree or did you do a conversion afterwards? No, I did. I did a law degree. Um, I I knew I wanted to go to university. That was 100% what I knew I wanted to do. And then I was thinking fashion design. And then I kind of put that aside because I, I didn't want to have to. Even back then, I didn't want to have to take orders from somebody else, which I thought <laughs> if you're just coming into the fashion business, you'd have to do that. And also, I, I like the idea of design, but I'm not really good at sewing or creating things like that and then I thought about languages and then I'm not really sure what it was that made me think about law I remember thinking that law was a good all-purpose degree to have mm. and also if you are a child of immigrants there's certain careers that they want you to go into like law medicine accountancy those kind of careers and I have a brother who's an accountant so there oh, really? goes. <laughs> yes <laughs> um uh, but I I liked the intellectual challenge of law so that was what I did but when I was doing the degree it wasn't with a view to me becoming a barrister. I just wanted to do the degree and then take a bit of time and work out what I was going to do after that. You talked in the interviews about the importance of loving the law, both applied and in practice. I think quite a lot of people think, oh, I quite fancy being a lawyer, not necessarily knowing all that much about it, and then study it and think, oh, my God, this is an absolute nightmare. Did you actually enjoy the, de the degree and studies? I did. I really did. It, it it really I found my sweet spot there. I really did. I love the academic side of it. I love the when you we would do sort of mooting. I loved doing that. Um, I I it it worked for me. I I really I really liked it. But 
when I go into schools now and I I haven't really done it much since the pandemic, but I used to do a lot of volunteering for an organization called Speakers for Schools. And I'd go in and I'd talk to them and I would say to the kids, particularly the ones who liked the idea of being a lawyer, because they thought if you asked, you drilled down a little bit, it was, well, lawyers make a lot of money. And I said, well, some lawyers do, not all. But I said, do you really like it? Do you really like the law? And um, uh, I remember having a discussion with one youngster who, um, wanted to go young man who wanted to be a sports lawyer because he thought he could represent lots of footballers and stuff and I said well yeah if you get into that absolutely it'd be great but what happens if you don't or if you you do so little that work you never get to be with your footballer hero you know arguing his cases or whatever and they didn't think about that and I said you have it has to be a subject Whatever you go on to study, if you do go to university, it has got to be a subject that you love because you will be doing it when it's cold, when you don't feel well, however it is. But you still have to perform. You still have to produce the goods. Mm. And so it has to be something that you love. And hopefully it's law. But if it's even if it's not law, it's got to be something that you love to do. So I I still would say that to people. So forgive me, because I'm a bit um, hazy on the system, but you do your degree and then do you do a pupillage after that? Now, in between, um, there's in between stage, you do your degree, if, if, assuming you have a law degree and not a, a, yeah. another one that you have to convert. But you do your law degree. And during the time of your law degree, that is when you have to decide, usually by the end of the first year, that is when you have to decide if you want to be a barrister or a solicitor, because you have to apply sort of two or so years out before you, you get it. And at the end of that first year, I thought, if I'm going to be a, a, a lawyer, I want to be a barrister. I like the idea of standing and arguing cases. So I, I, I did that. Then it has changed since I did it. But then after that, you would go to bar school. Now, that is actually still the same. But at the time, there was only one place in the whole of England and Wales where you could go to bar school. And that was in the, the Inns of Court School of Law just off Chancery Lane. And of course, you know, if it's one place, there's only a fixed number of people that can get in. So I did get in. Wow. Um, now I think there's lots of places. Maybe lots is not the word, but there's definitely more than one place you can go and do I, it. You know, I never, ever knew about bar school. I've never heard of it before, isn't it? Yeah, incredible? you have to. That's it. That's the postgraduate year. Hmm. And it's but it's a short year. It's only about seven months. So it's very intensive. And then if you pass the bar exams, the, and you eat all your dinners, which was the, that was it when I was doing it. Then you would then go on to do pupillage. Right, I'd be very, so good, at, be very good at the dinners. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, Christina. Look, I think the food now has improved massively. But honestly, back then, you had to you had to pass six papers for your um, bar finals, yeah. but you also had to eat twenty four dinners. And if you if you passed all of your papers, but you didn't eat all your dinners, you wouldn't get admitted to the bar. You wouldn't get called to the bar. And and can, can you give me some vague sense of the crazed rationale of that? I have absolutely no idea. It's quite interesting. I was having this discussion with someone just today. Uh, it, 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 back then, it had no rationale. I think now what they've done with the dinners is that now they put, because then it was just everyone who was a bar student, you come in, you tick your name off, you ate your dinners, you went. Now I think they they put um, bar students and barristers both together and you sit and you chat about things. There's usually a lecture and then there's a dinner afterwards. You sit and chat about these. So there is a there's a more of a method to the madness, whereas before then it was just you just have to do it. I think historically 
four or five hundred years ago, the only way that you could become a barrister was if, well, first of all, if you were a man, and secondly, if you sat and um, discussed cases over food with other learned men of the law, if you like. And I think that was where the dining thing is just a hangover from that. I mean, what do I know? The Lincoln's Inn, which is my inn, is 600 years old this year. So maybe they could tell you better than I can. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm surprised they don't have to wear cod pieces or, you know, whatever else. Oh, don't encourage them. So you have kind of class-wise a very interesting and I'd say quite complicated background. Yes. Um, certainly, yeah, middle class. Um <laughs> The law is traditionally a very upper middle class profession. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like? And you and you you say that Lee Mitchell in Without Bridges is working class, but you're very clearly not. Mm-hmm. What was it like navigating the class aspects of bar? Well, for me, it's interesting that there's some. Let's say within crime writing, I, I, I'm saying this because I went to a very interesting um, uh, panel of six black crime writers for Black History Month that was at Gray's Inn that um, Baroness Hale had organised. And uh, it was a really interesting panel, but one of the people on there was talking a lot about class. And I think sometimes, and that clearly is her experience, but I think sometimes, um, you know, not every, the black experience, the black British experience is not monolithic. So um, for me, class was kind of in the background, but I always thought that the most important point of difference or where I would be um, discriminated against, if you like, was around race, not sex, not um, class, not anything else, but race first and foremost. Yeah. And I think that is the case because you can be a black person of any social class and you can still get called the N word on the street or you can still get um, uh, have an encounter with the police, which is less than favorable, let's just say that's not going to make a difference. So for me, that was always the most important thing. I think it's interesting that a lot of people, um, and this again is in the early days when people perhaps weren't as nuanced, um, white barristers, I should say, weren't as nuanced. They just automatically assumed that if I was black and I was at the bar, that I really kind of bootstrapped my way up from poverty mm-hmm. and I didn't, um, and, and their reaction was like, we have to kind of help you. Um, not everybody, but some we're like that. Um, now I think people are a lot more nuanced about mm. it. So for me, if you talk to another black barrister, they would say that class was a big thing. For me, I always felt and still do feel that any point of difference where I feel I have not been treated as I should, it's around race, it's not around class. Mm. And how did, I mean, obviously, I, I very much doubt, I'm sure there isn't a single, well, I was going to say, I'm sure there isn't a single non-white person in this country who hasn't experienced racism, but particularly if we're talking Windrush generation, the racism was absolutely blatant. It had a no black, yes. no dogs, no Irish, all of that. How did yes. your parents um, teach you to deal with racism? I think that one thing that absolutely was burned into the brains of me, and I've, I've got two younger brothers, so the, all of us, was you have to be twice as good. Uh, or sometimes it's twice as good to be considered half as good if you're out there. But basically, you have to be twice as good. And it was really interesting because it didn't. It that is one thing. It doesn't matter any black professional person you talk to. Doesn't matter what their um, heritage is, or 
what political party they support or anything like that, they will tell you the same thing. And if you if you um, speak to a black American, they'll tell you the same thing. In fact, I remember Condoleezza Rice was interviewed about something and she said exactly the same thing. Michelle Obama said exactly the same thing. It is something that you always taught you have to be twice as good. There is basically there's no room for failure. Um, you can't really have an off day. You have to be on it all the time. And I think uh, how has that played out in my life right now? I think it's um, even all these years later, I'm still aware of that. And so I'm still never knowingly underprepared for anything as a result. Um, kind of sad. It, well, not sad exactly. I think it's, um, I suppose it, it, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through life not feeling that you have to be doubling up in your work, mm -hmm. doubling up in your energies, uh, to go through life feeling that you're, you know, all you have to do is go in and do your best. No, well, it's, uh, you have to go and do your best and a bit more than that because people will still find a reason why for example the reason why there aren't enough black judges isn't because there's something inherently wrong with the system and i see that just um actually just within the hour before uh, us having this discussion i've seen there's something out about allegedly institutional racism amongst the judiciary i haven't read it so i can't comment on it um but some people would say well it's because black people are inherently incapable intellectually inherently intellectually incapable of being judges rather than trying to look at the system to see what it is that means that people apply and they don't get through so yeah your mother must be and your father must be incredibly proud of your achievements and my god they they they, they are they i mean up until the time that my dad died just after i he knew i became a a judge and so that was really, I mean, he died quite suddenly in between me, knowing that I became a judge and then seeing me get sworn in. He sadly died in between, but at least he knew that I'd done it. And my mum is uh, alive and elderly and is very much loves the idea of her daughter. As she came to see one of my cases. <laughs> my judge, she wouldn't let us. I've not let her come to see me sit as a judge now. She did come to see me, said, I don't know how it happened, but she came to see me try a case and she sat at the back and she was frowning at my opponent so i did not let her come and see me do anything as a judge i, I might do that because i think she'd like it so. your, your secret weapon in court yes. the opposition. yeah she was my secret weapon in the cayman islands i'll tell you that oh, so. oh i bet yeah so i want to hear about that but but first i did wonder do you think your father had these dreams of being a barrister which were not fulfilled yes obviously fantastically proud of you was there any mm -hmm. iota of sweetness for him do you think i think there was actually i mean to be fair i think and i understand why you asked me that well, i think there was he was really proud of me doing it but i know if things were different he would have liked to have done it himself um i think there was probably a little bit of over identification with my cases as a result but more than anything, he was just really proud. I mean, it, it is the immigrant's dream if your children, you know, particularly those old respected professions like being a barrister at Lincoln's Inn, no less, you know, um, you know, every person who had reached any significance within the political establishment in Guyana who had become a, a barrister had would become a lawyer. A had become a barrister and B had gone to Lincoln's Inn. So it's very, 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 very strong. So. Yeah. And tell me about the work itself. Uh, what mm -hmm. when you became uh, what do you call it called to the bar is that when you're yes. yeah yeah 
what when you first started and did you do a mix of um did you do a mix of private what, what did you do when you started off oh the kind of work I did yeah um well when I was a pupil when you do your pupillage the first six months of your pupillage because you've already done your three-year degree and one-year postgrad that you do a 12-month pupillage back in the day I'm, I'm just talking about my time I'm not really sure how it works now um, you could do just one 12 months in one set of chambers, or you could do two lots of six. So I did two lots of six. My first six months was in a, a, a very traditional, largely civil set of chambers. And myself and another black women, we integrated those chambers. We were the first two black pupils that ever taken off. And so in your first six, you can't go into court and be on your feet and argue cases. But I was doing a civil first six, so I did a lot of drafting of um, contracts and pleadings and that kind of thing. My pupil master did um, a lot of work for British Rail. He was like their standing counsel for British Rail. So I ended up doing a lot of drafting for him, which he said was good, so that, that, that really helped. Second six is when you start to earn, potentially earn money for yourself, because you can go into court and do cases on your own. And most of those would be what I call knockabout crime. It would be like shoplifting cases, bail applications, very, very early stage stuff. Um, and that's how you cut your teeth on cases like that. So that's that's the kind of work that I did. But I've always, the whole time I was at the bar, I always did a mixture of civil work and criminal work. Mm. And I presume you will have done, since you, well, have you done criminal work? involving murders and uh, yes I have yeah I I met um on a wasn't really a date but it was could have been a date had there been mm -hmm. which certainly there wasn't on my side with mm -hmm. a guy who was ground down to the point of I would say traumatized by some he was a barrister by yeah. um some of the cases he worked with um yes you know you obviously you, you do come across the worst of man's inhumanity to man. Yes. How did you develop mechanisms to protect yourself from the trauma? Well, I'm so glad you asked me that because the fact of the matter is you do see some really horrible things and you don't... I think now, because um, I, I don't know how long ago this chap was when you met him but I certainly think nowadays within the within the last not even that long actually but certainly within the last seven years certainly and um, there are definitely mechanisms now in place at the bar where people have a greater understanding about vicarious trauma where you can hear horrible things and it affects you and if you do a lot of very difficult cases murders manslaughters very nasty gbhs um and let's not even get on to sexual cases rape including paedophilia type cases all of that stuff it after a while it can really affect you I think before that there was a sense certainly when in my early years at the bar there's a sense that well you know just toughen up suck it up um just keep going but a lot of people were affected but they didn't want to say and so um I think what happened when things started to change at the bar and I, I think it might be a little bit longer than seven years ago, but we're not talking a very, very long time ago when these things started to change. There were three people within a fairly close span of time, possibly about a year, 18 months, well-known barristers, including one QC, who committed suicide. 
And I think it really made people start to look, and, and they were all criminal barristers, mm. it really made people start to consider what on earth is going on. So now there's a whole um, wellness in the law kind of section, which um, is, I think, a massively positive thing, because otherwise people used to suffer in silence and self-medicate, and usually self-medicating through alcohol. Mm. So, which doesn't actually make anything, you know. You know, I certainly like a nice glass of wine, but you know, as as a as a way to to blot out all the things that have happened, mm. that doesn't work. So. Mm. And um, how long had you been practicing as a as a barrister when you wrote Without Prejudice? And and what and what was what got you going on that? Okay, I had been practicing. I've been thinking about writing it for a while, actually. I'm not really sure what the yeah I think I know what the genesis was I was I used to read a lot of John Grisham when he was good he kind of fell off the wagon then he's back good again but um I used to read a lot of him and Scott Turow and other people writing in that genre and they were all from the UK sorry all from the states mm. and uh I'm not saying there weren't people writing legal fiction in the UK but off the top of my head I can only think of Francis Fifield at the moment and I thought and, and of course, John Mortimer and Rumpole of the Bailey. So I wanted, I thought, you know, the law that I know is so different from Rumpole of the Bailey and no one's writing it. And also all of these books, even the American ones, they don't have a black protagonist, let alone a black female protagonist. And some of them only had a few females anyway, but, you know, black female protagonists as, as lawyers. So I thought if no one else is doing it, I would do it. But that's me thinking about it. How it actually came about was... There's a lot of serendipity in my writing. It really, it's almost like, you know, at the risk of sounding like, a, I don't know, like a hippie or something. It's, it's almost a spiritual experience. Some of the things that have happened around it. Um, I I was sort of writing this book and not knowing what anybody was. No, sorry. Before that, I won the Cosmopolitan Women of Achievement Award for the professions category. I was doing a very difficult civil case and I kind of wanted to. You know, I was a big Cosmo reader then. I wanted to enter this competition. I didn't want to ask anybody else because I felt a bit embarrassed. So I thought, you said you can self-nominate. So I sent it in myself, not thinking it would get very far. And then I ended up winning that. Then uh, as a, uh, after that, I was approached to be in this uh, TV program for Granada TV, uh, first Tuesday about life at the bar. And there were three barristers featured, me being one of them. And shortly after that came on the screen, I got approached by a literary agent who said, I don't know whether you've been approached, but I've just been surfing the channels. I saw your segment of this program. I think you've got a book in you and you might have already been approached by other people. If you haven't, why don't you get in touch with me? So all that time I was actually thinking about writing this book. I was doing a bit fitfully, you know, in between trials and everything. And so I got in touch with this person and um, it, you would think that's the end of it. It actually wasn't because uh, I think what they wanted me to write and what I wanted to write were two different things. So we ended up parting ways. And, but I still carried on writing and I thought I'm going to finish it and then we'll see what happens. And then I finished it, sent it off to a couple of people, ended up going to headline and it, unrepresented. And it was in the slush pile, apparently. Yeah. And probably also there was the bin. I don't know. But it was in the slush pile and someone went in and fished it out the slush pile and put it on an editor's desk. And that was how that happened. Amazing. And of course, it was a, it was a very big hit and you got masses of acclaim and publicity. I have mm. the sense, I mean, I've met you once. Mm. Um, I have the sense that you're actually rather a private person. 
Um, <laughs> is that right? I guess I am. Yes. Yeah. So, what was it like, uh, sort of being thrust into the spotlight like that? I mean, I suppose you'd already had some of that by being on telly. It's hardly anonymous being on telly, is it? But um, I think I was a little concerned more about the impact it would have on my barrister career yeah. because. I had no intention. I mean, I love to write, but I also love being at the bar and I had no intention of sacrificing one for the other. Mm. And so I remember it was a July. God, it was such a long time ago. It was July 97 when it first came out. And I remember driving into Chambers to get my uh, brief for the next day. And I passed. It's, it's, it's no longer there, but it was a really famous legal bookshop called Sweden Maxwell right in the corner of Fleet Street. And it, it, it sold like what I call hardcore legal books. But they actually had a whole window display of my book. And I was so I nearly crashed the car because I wasn't expected to see that. So it was, it was a real moment, actually. And that was when I realized this is probably going to be bigger than I thought it was going to be. And, um, you know, it's interesting you should say that because I guess now I've written another one when that comes out in, in March of next year. Um, you know, time's moved on. And I think I think, in fact, there will probably be potentially much more attention to that book and much more exposure for me. And, you know, like I say, once an introvert, I think always an introvert, I'm probably a little bit more of an ambivert so I can do yeah. social things. Yeah. But my default is always to not do it. Um, I don't know how I'll manage. Um, I, I think the last time I just managed because I just did. Mm -hmm. um, but this time around, I think because, you know, potentially there's a wider reach. And I have been thinking about that. But I know how long it took me to write this book that's coming out. And so anything that comes with that, it comes with the territory. And I just have to deal with that. Mm. And how long did it take you to write this one? Well, I was actually thinking, I remember Without Prejudice took me, that took me nine months to a year. Um, which actually now I think about it because I was in full-time private practice. Very quick. That, that was really going some actually. Mm. Um, I would go to court, come home. I would... Um, watch like prepare my brief for the next day and then I remember I would watch Newsnight. Newsnight was always in my head the kind of like the the middle bit between work and writing so I'd watch Newsnight that would finish about quarter past 11 or thereabouts and I sort of got mentally prepare myself for writing I'd probably start around about midnight wow and then and then I'd write between midnight and four in the morning huh? and I did that I did that for at least nine months um and honestly Christina I don't know how I did it. All I knew is that I couldn't do it again. Not not those kind of hours. And I was surviving on four hours sleep um, because I'd have to go to court the next day. I I don't know. How, all I, the only thing I can say is that if you really, 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 really want something, you will push through an awful lot. But it's also not a very healthy way to live. I'd be the first person to say that. So when I started writing again, I knew I couldn't do that again. So so um, when, when, because the, the, book flap of the book published in 1997 said you're working on another <laughs> another one were you oh, yeah. had you started this was, or was that something else or hadn't you no when when it was um if, if you're talking about the edition which is a red black and white cover no no i'm talking the, no i'm talking about the original one hmm. ah yes no I, I i had a two book deal with um headline and what had happened i i don't know it was a combination of feeling kind of exhausted and you know, oh, I'm just going to take a month off and then get back to it. Then a month became two, three, four, six a year. And then it's quite hard to pick up after that. And also I had a real drop in self-belief, which is really quite crazy looking back on it. But I did. I just thought, 
I can't do this again. I, I, I just can't. Um, I, I didn't have what it took to be a writer, even though I'd written a book. I did. That was the kind of sort of, you know, feelings without any basis, any factual basis that I had. Uh, but the so when I did eventually start writing again, it was I left it so long that my book, my two book deal with headline fell through. And then I was starting to write again. It, it just didn't feel right. It just didn't didn't click. And I the, the book that's coming out in March, I had a kind of nascent idea about it, but I was working on it very, very, very fitfully, very fitfully. And then in lockdown 2020, like a lot of people, I thought, you know what? I've got the time now, the time that I would spend to commute to work, I'm going to try and resurrect this. And I would have a two hour commute hour each way to work. So I would use first last hour of the day. But the other thing that happened then was that Bernadine Evaristo picked your book, didn't she, as a, a range of um, sort of revived black writers. Yes, she um, did. And I wondered whether that, you know, kind of was any kind of spur for you. Oh, it was. Well, what happened? I mean, there was, like I said about serendipity with my writing. First time around was serendipity. The second time around, it was as well. Um, the second time around, there's me thinking I, I want to write. Um, I did. Um, I did get an agent by this time, but we weren't. Um, but I was just going to finish my book and then let him have it. And then we we'll see what went mm -hmm. after that. And I remember I have a, a really good friend, Susan, who is another black woman, black woman lawyer. And um, she worked around the corner from where I worked when I worked with defense. And she was really quiet, but she always knows about these things that are going on. So she'd invited me to something, which I thought was like a book group for the for the female partners of a very, very fancy city firm. And it turned out and I didn't want to go. I was having a lot of problems at work at the time. And but I didn't want to let it down. So I went. And when I turned out, I thought this is not like any book group I've ever been to because first of all you're greeted by uniformed staff giving you bubbles as soon as you get to the door you then see lots of kind of like sort of well-known-ish people in the room um very nice nibbles as well and then the books from four different authors that were there that's um Bernadine Everisto um Mallory Blackman Louise Doughty and Diana Evans and then I see that all four writers are there as well. So it was like, OK, this is not your regular book group. Um, and then um, Bernadine said um, she recognized me. She said, I know you. And I said, I'm thinking, I don't think you do, because I mean, I know who you are, but I'm just Nicola Williams. She said, no, you were that person. You wrote that book, that legal thriller a long time ago. And I said, yes. She said, why don't you write another one? And I was like feeling really bad. And I said, oh, you know, life kind of got in the way. And she just looked at me. Um, really quite quizzically and she said that's the same you should have written another one it was really good and that was about mm, less than six months before she won the booker mm. and when she won the booker one of the things that she wanted to do was to bring uh, back six books fiction books into life that she felt should have had more play than they did uh, at the time uh, or more recognition anyway and uh, mine was one of the six uh, but interestingly, we had a conversation subsequently where she said, um, I said, Bernadine, if I hadn't gone to that event, because I really did not want to go, if I hadn't gone to that event, would you have thought about including me in your six? And she said, honestly, Nicola, I wouldn't have done. And it's not because your book wasn't good. I thought it was excellent. But everybody else, apart from one person who had died, Everybody else was still writing. They might not have been published, but they were still writing. I thought that you had given up writing and were just concentrating on, on the law. 
And so I wouldn't have thought about including you. And uh, so it's those kind of things around my writing. A lot of stuff like that happens. Mm. So, it, you know, uh, you know, hard work and talent and actually putting pen to paper. Yes, because I write longhand and then I type it up. But um, there are things that I couldn't never control or foresee. And that is definitely one of those things. Mm. Mm. Well, I can't wait to read your book and it'll be very interesting and exciting to see see what happens in the spring and and also having you know got to where you've got professionally I imagine you know it's it's a very different thing because you know you're kind of absolutely top of your profession now so it's not Mm -hmm. like it's going to kind of wreck your legal career not that it would have done in 1997 but but you are at a very different stage I don't know it depends if I write something about judges that they don't like it you know you're untouchable now (laughs) I don't know about that (laughs) so so you gave up your practice to become an ombudsman for the uh, UK Defence Forces why did you give it up what did that involve what did you like about it Okay, um, I didn't give it up to to take on the defence ombudsman role. I I, I gave it up. Um, I think partly, uh, lots of things actually. I think partly at the time, I realised I'd done the only thing I'd ever done was being at the bar, and I, I loved it. But at the same time, it was the only thing I'd ever done. Um, and I think I was actually looking back, and it was getting a little bit burnt out. Which I mean, now all these years later, I'm happy to say, but um, then I would never have said it. Mm. I'd have cut my arm off before I mentioned that, because mm. uh, I was also doing some tough cases like death penalty cases, murder trials, and some pretty tough cases. Um, but I became an ombudsman. To, my first two, I had four ombudsman jobs. The first two were involving the police and police misconduct cases in the UK. My third one uh, was in the Cayman Islands, which was a, a whole different kettle of fish, actually. Very nice on some levels and quite challenging on another. And then the the final ombudsman role I had was the one where I was the um, service complaints ombudsman for the UK Armed Forces. I was the first first ombudsman, full stop. Uh, There was a service complaints commissioner before that, but they didn't have the powers of the ombudsman. Um, Needless to say, I was the first um, black woman as the ombudsman, first black person, let alone black woman. And at the time, I was the highest ranking black person in UK defence, at the equivalent rank of a three star general. Um, I know it's uh, it throws me, actually, because I'm just thinking I'm just Nicola Williams. You're like like Condoleezza Rice or somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Or Colin Powell. (laughs) (laughs) But it's um, so that was my last ombudsman run. All ombudsman was a fixed term appointment. So I knew it was going to come to an end at the end of 2020. I knew that. Um, And it was in March 2020 when the the lockdown happened. And that was when I started writing. And then I thought, I'm going to really give this a go. February 21 was when when Without Prejudice was republished. And I thought, I'm going to give this a go until the end of 21. Then we'll see how this goes. And then every year I will, you know, reassess and see how things are going. But at, at the moment, I'm very happy to have a portfolio career. So I write. I still sit as a judge. Uh, but I sit part time as a judge out of choice. And then there's a couple of other things that I'm doing as well. But I wanted to leave room for writing and also room to get a bit of balance back in my life, too. So. So um, the own the, the kind of probably the best account I've read of being a judge is um, Ian McEwan's The Children Act. Oh, I saw that film. Oh, my I, gosh. I haven't seen the film, actually, but the book, I thought the novel was, in fact, I reviewed, I reviewed the novel. I thought it was wonderful. And mm. the kind of precision of the the judge's 
judgment. Um, yes. it, it, I thought it gave a, a fantastic insight into the work of a judge. I know you don't do family law, mm. um, but obviously you are putting people behind bars. Yes. Do you ever have, uh, do you ever lose sleep over any of your cases? Yes, I do. Um, I guess the longer you do it, the less sleep you lose, but you definitely have to think very long and hard, I think, before you deprive someone of their liberty, particularly if even if the case is serious. And I'm not saying that if a case isn't serious, that you should be deprived of your liberty, because if you are convicted or you plead guilty to a case that's carrying prison, a, a prison sentence, then that's what you have to get. But if it's a young person or somebody who is the first time that they're in trouble, but they're in trouble for something where custody is inevitable that is quite hard to do that to deprive them of their liberty um but you have a you know there, there is a kind of metric and you work it out against that like for example not limited to this i think if you are the kind of lawyer that or bar, uh, judge rather that doesn't really um take a pause before you deprive someone of their liberty then i don't think you're worthy of wearing the robe and what has given you most joy in this? You mean in, in the different things that I've done? Yeah. Um, do you know, I think all of them at different points have done it. I remember what it was like to win an unwinnable case, um, either in front of a jury or sometimes even without a jury, you're making a submission, which means if, it, if the submission succeeds, you'll get off because it's pure intellect then. Um, those are really... That's that's really great. And then when I um, as a writer, of course, that gives me, uh, you know, when it's going well, I'm sure, as you know, when it's going well, it's the most amazing thing in the world. When it's going badly, it's it's you're racked with self-doubt. Uh, so I think each of those things has really given me pleasure and some pain. Um, but I think over overall, I don't I like variety and I don't like to be bored. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I've done a lot of things and also why even now I've doing a lot of things at the same time so so that is it I think above all I want for younger people coming up behind me to think oh you know well she's a, 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 particularly they're black but not exclusively if she's or even young women of whatever ethnicity you know if she's done it then I can do it as well the, the thing that would give me unalloyed joy is if uh, a young person would say you know i didn't think I was going to go to university to study law or I didn't think I was going to study anything really and I met you and I think well if you've gone for your dreams I can go for my dreams whatever those dreams are mm -hmm. so I think that more than anything really gives me a lot of pleasure well that's wonderful thank you so much Nicola it's been an absolute delight thank you thank you so much for listening you can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify or any of the main podcast directories and I'd be really grateful if you'd share, rate it and or leave a review. Do sign up to my free Substack newsletter, also called The Art of Work. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, my books or explore the possibility of coaching with me, do have a look at my website, theartofwork.co and do join me for another podcast next week.